Chapter 8 of The Merry-Go-Round. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Peterson. The Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Maugham. Section 21. Mrs. Castalion passed a sleepless, unquiet night, and looking at herself in the glass next morning was shocked at her haggard countenance but she was determined that Reggie, during his final interview, should discern no sign of her distress, and coming down to breakfast was to all appearance in the highest spirits. She noticed the hang-dog air with which he avoided her glance, and with angry resolution began to rally him in the somewhat obvious fashion often mistaken by persons of her sort for wit. To conceal her poignant misery, she kept up a flow of vapid conversation, intermingled with little shrieks of laughter, and pointed by much gesticulation, but she exaggerated her spiritless vivacity so that the effect was somewhat hysterical, and Frank, whom this did not escape, wondering what thus affected her, mentally prescribed a sedative. The carriage drove round before breakfast was over, and Mrs. Bassett, fearful of missing her train, began to bid the company farewell. Mrs. Castilian held out her hand frankly to Reggie. Goodbye. You must come and see us again when you have time. I hope you have enjoyed yourself. Ah, he answered. He could not understand the smiling carelessness of her look, wherein he saw no reproach nor anger, and asked himself uncomfortably what grace could have in mind. He pondered slowly over the harm she could possibly do him, but he was glad of the decisive rupture and heartily thankful the final meeting was over. He hated her the more because of the reminder that a good deal of money had passed from her hands to his. She knew I couldn't afford to go about with her on my allowance, and I've spent it all on her, he muttered to himself in extenuation. They were in the train now, and he looked at his mother, who sat on the opposite corner of the carriage reading the morning post. He would not have liked her to know the details of the affair. Again, he repeated excuses to himself, at the end of which he settled to a sullen resentment against Grace, because she had tempted him. Finally, his thoughts went elsewhere, and his heart began to beat more quickly. But after the Bessetta and Frank were gone, Mrs. Castilian was seized by a great dismay and shuddered as though a cold wind blew, because she must spend two days more under the stern eyes of Paul's mother, who seemed to watch with a vindictive triumph, as though she knew the abominable secret, and to reveal it only waited for an opportunity. Grace stood looking out the window at the wide stretch of meadowland and the splendid trees of the park. The sky was gray, covering the earth with a certain sad monotony, which answered her mood. Depressed after the forced excitement of the early morning, Paul came up behind her and placed his arm around her waist. Are you very tired, darling? he asked. She shook her head, trying to smile, touched as of late she had been often by the gentleness of his voice. I'm afraid you exhaust yourself. You are the life and spirit of the whole party. Without you, we should have been almost dull. From force of habit, an ironic and obvious repartee came to her lips, but she did not say it. She leaned her head against his shoulder. I'm beginning to feel so dreadfully old, Paul. Nonsense. You've scarcely reached your prime. You're looking prettier than ever. Do you think so, really? I suppose it's because you care for me a little still. This morning, I thought I looked a hundred and two. He did not answer, being more accustomed to debate than to conversation, but pressed his arm a little more closely round her waist. Have you never regretted that you married me, Paul? I know I'm not the sort of wife you wanted, and I've never brought you any children. He was profoundly moved, for his wife had never spoken to him in such a way before. For once, the pompousness fell away from his delivery, and he answered in trembling tones, almost whispering, 
my darling. Each day I thank God for you. I feel I'm not worthy of the blessing I've received, and I'm grateful to my Maker, very grateful, because He has given me you to be my wife. Grace's lips twitched, and she clenched her hands to prevent herself from bursting into tears. He looked at her with a fond smile. Grace, I bought a little present for your birthday next week. May I give it to you now instead of waiting? Yes, do, she smiled. I knew you had something, and I'm so impatient. Quite jauntily, he went off, and in a minute, somewhat out of breath from his haste, returned with a diamond ornament. Mrs. Castilian knew something of jewelry, and her eyes glistened at the magnificence of this. Paul, how could you? she cried. How perfectly gorgeous. But I didn't want anything half so valuable. I have so much that you've given me. I only wanted a tiny present to show that you still cared for me. He beamed with satisfaction and rubbed his hands gleefully, as if anything was too good for my loving, faithful wife. We mustn't show it to your mother, Paul. She'd scold awfully, answered Grace archly. No, no. He burst into a shout of laughter. No, no, hide it from her. Mrs. Castilian raised her lips to his, and with ardent passion, unexpected in that stout, complacent man, he kissed her. At that moment, the dog cart came to the door, and Paul, in some surprise, asked his wife if she needed it. Oh, I forgot, she cried. I'm going up to town for the day. I ought to have told you. Miss Lay is much worse than she pretends, and I think I should go and see if I can do anything. The night's dreary meditation had left her with a sensible resolve to consult Miss Lay, and when the maid came to draw the blinds, she had ordered the trap to take her to the station for the train after that by which her guests were going. Now glibly, she invented an excuse for her journey, and refused to hear Paul's remonstrance, who feared she might make herself ill, nor would she allow him to accompany her. I feel I mustn't prevent you when you're bent on an errand of mercy, he said at length, but come back as early as you can. Miss Lay was finishing luncheon when Miss Castilian was announced. I thought you were entertaining at Jaston, she exclaimed, much surprised to see her. I felt I must see you or I should go mad. Oh, why didn't you come down? I wanted you so badly. Miss Lay, evidently in robust health, could not repeat her plea of indisposition, and therefore, instead of explaining, offered her guest food. I couldn't eat anything, cried Grace, with a shiver of distaste. I'm simply distracted. I surmise that you were in some trouble, murmured Miss Lay, for I think you've rather overdone the slap. Isn't that the technical expression? Mrs. Castilian put both hands to her cheeks. It burns me. Let me go and wash it off. I had to put it on this morning. I look such an absolute wreck. May I go and bathe my face? It'll cool me. By all means, answered Miss Lay, smiling and while Miss Castilian was absent, asked herself what could be the cause of this sudden excursion. Presently, Grace returned and looked in the glass. Her skin, bare of rouge and powder, was yellow and lined, and the cosmetic on her eyebrows and lashes, which water did not remove, threw into more violent contrast the ghastly pallor. Instinctively, she took a puff from her pocket and quickly powdered her face. Then she turned to Miss Lay. Did you never make up? she asked. Never. I was always afraid of making myself absurd. Oh, one gets over that. But I know it's silly. I'm going to give up. You say that as tragically as though you announced your intention of getting into a nunnery. Miss Cotillion glanced at the door suspiciously. Will no one come in? She asked. No one. But for all that, I recommend you to keep calm, retorted the other, who suspected that Grace wished to make a scene and somewhat resented the infliction. It's all finished between Reggie and me. He's thrown me over like a worn-out tie. He's got somebody else. You're well rid of him, my dear. Miss Lay's sharp eyes were intent on Miss Castilian's face, 
seeking therein to read the inner secret of her heart. You don't care for him any more, do you? No, thank God I don't. Oh, Miss Lay, I know you won't believe me, but I'm going to try to turn over a new leaf. During those last months, I've seen Paul so differently. Of course, he's absurd and pompous and dull. I know that better than anyone. But he is so kind. Even now, he loves me with all his heart. And he's honest. You don't know what it means to be with a man who's straight to the very bottom of his soul. It's such a relief and such a comfort. My dear, it surely requires no excuse to find good qualities in one's husband. You show a state of mind which is not only laudable, but highly original and, and ingenious. It makes it much harder for me, answered Miss Castilian. We'll be gone and tragic. I feel such an awful cad. I can't bear that he should trust me implicitly when I've behaved in such a disgusting way. I can't bear his kindness. You guessed before that I was tortured by the desire to make a clean breast of it, and now I can't resist any longer. This morning, when he was so sweet and gentle, I could hardly restrain myself. I can't go on. I must tell him and get it over. I would rather be divorced than continue with this perpetual lie between us. Miss Lay observed her for some while calmly. How selfish you are, she murmured at length, in an even frigid voice. I had no idea you were beginning to care for your husband, but I do care for him, answered Miss Castilian with astonishment. Surely not, or you wouldn't wish to cause him such great unhappiness. You know very well that he dotes upon you. You are the only light and brightness in his life. If he loses his faith in you, he loses everything. But it's only honest to confess my sin. Don't you remember the proverb that open confession is good for the soul? There's a lot of truth in it. It is very good indeed for the soul of the person who confesses. But are you sure it's good for the listener? When you wish to tell Paul what you have done, you think only of your own peace of mind, and you disregard entirely your husband's. It may be only an illusion that you are a beautiful woman of virtuous temper, but all things are illusion. And why on earth should you insist on destroying that of all others which Paul holds dearest? Haven't you done him harm enough already? When I see a madman wearing a paper crown under the impression that it's fine gold, I haven't the brutality to undeceive him. Let no one shake our belief in the fancies which are the very breath of our nostrils. There are three good maxims in the conduct of life. Never sin, but if you sin, never repent. And above all, if you repent, never, never confess. Can't you sacrifice yourself a little for the sake of the man you've treated so badly? But I don't understand, cried Grace. It's not self-sacrifice to hold my tongue. It's just cowardly. I want to take my punishment. I want to start fair again, and that I can't look Paul in the face. My dear, you have an incredible passion for redemption. You're really not thinking of Paul in the least. You have merely an ardent desire to make a scene. You wish to be a martyr and abase yourself in due form. Above all, you want to rid yourself of the burden of a somewhat guilty conscience. And to do that, you are perfectly indifferent how much you make others suffer. May I suggest that if you're really sorry for what you've done, you can show it best by acting differently in the future. And if you hanker after punishment, you can get as much as ever you want by taking care that no word or deed of yours lets your husband into the rather odious secret. Mrs. Castilian looked down, following with her eyes the pattern of the carpet. She thought over all that Miss Lay said. I came to you for advice, she moaned helplessly, and you've only made me more undecided than ever. Pardon me? 
answered the other with considerable asperity. You came with your mind perfectly made up for me to approve your disinterestedness, but as I think you uncommonly stupid and selfish, I reserve my applause. The result of this conversation was that Miss Castilian promised to hold her tongue, but on leaving Old Queen Street to catch the train back to Jayston, she would have been puzzled to tell whether there was in her mood more of relief or of disappointment. Mrs. Castilian arrived at Jayston just in time to dress for dinner, and somewhat tired of her journey, did not notice the gravity which affected the family party. She was accustomed to their dullness and ate the food silently, wishing the meal over. When Paul and Bainbridge came into the drawing-room afterwards, with an effort she gave her husband a smile of welcome and made room for him on the sofa whereon she sat. Tell me what it is you wanted to speak about last night, she said. You asked for my advice, and I was too cross to give it to you. He smiled, but his face quickly regained its serious look. It's too late now. I had to decide at once, but I'd better tell you about it. Fetch my cloak, then, and we'll stroll up and down the terrace. The light tires my eyes, and I hate talking to you always in the presence of other people. Paul was only too pleased to do as she suggested, and found it very delightful to wander in the pleasant starlit night. The clouds, which had darkened the morning, were vanished with the setting sun, and there was a delicate softness to the air. Grace took her husband's arm and her need for support made him feel very strong and masculine. A dreadful thing has happened, he said, and I've been very much upset. You remember Fanny Bridger, who went up to London last year in service. Well, she's come back. It appears that she got into trouble. He hesitated a moment in the discomfort of telling his wife the brutal fact. The man deserted her, and she's returned with a baby. He felt a tremor pass through his wife and wished that he had kept his second resolution to say nothing to her. I know you hate to speak of such things, but I must do something. She can't go on living here. Fanny Bridger's father was an under-gamekeeper on the estate, and his two sons were likewise employed. I saw Bridger today and told him his daughter must be sent away. I can't, in my position, connive at immortality. But where is she to go? asked Miss Castilian in a voice that was scarcely more than a whisper. That is no business of mine. The Bridgers have been good servants for many years and I don't wish to be hard on them. I've told the old man that I'll give him a week to find somewhere for his daughter to go. And if he can't? And if he can't, it'll be because he's a stupid and obstinate dolt. He began to make excuses this afternoon. He talked a deal of nonsense about keeping her in his care, and that it would break his heart to send her away. And he couldn't afford to. I thought it was no good mincing matters. So I told him if Fanny wasn't gone for good by Tuesday next, I should dismiss him and his two sons. Abruptly, Miss Castilian snatched her arm from his, and a coldness seized her. She was so indignant and horrified. We'd better go into your mother, Paul, she said, knowing to whom this determination of her husband was due. We must talk about this at once. Surprised at the change in her tone, Castilian followed his wife, who walked quickly to the drawing room and flung aside her cloak. She went up to Mrs. Castilian, the elder. Did you advise Paul that Fanny Bridger should be sent away? she asked, her eyes flaming with anger. Of course I did. She can't stay here, and I am happy to see that Paul has behaved with spirit. People in our position have to take great care. We must allow no contamination to enter the parish. What do you think will happen to the wretched girl if you turn her out? The only chance for her is to remain in her family. Paul's mother, by no means a patient woman, vastly resented the scornful indignation apparent on Grace's face. She drew herself up and spoke with tight lips, acidly. 
Perhaps you're not very capable of judging manners of this sort, my dear. You've lived so much in London that I dare say your notions of right and wrong are not quite clear. But you see, I'm only a country bumpkin. I'm happy to say I think differently from you. I've always been under the impression that there is something to be said for morality. To my mind, Paul has been absurdly lenient in giving them a week. My father would have turned them out bag and baggage in twenty-four hours. Grace shuddered at the cruel self-righteousness of that narrow, bigoted face, and then slowly examined Paul, whose eyes were upon her, dreadfully pained because she was angry, but nonetheless assured of his own recititude. She pursed her lips, and saying not a word more, went to her room. She felt that nothing could be done then, and made up her mind next morning to visit for herself the unlucky girl. Paul, disturbed because she did not speak to him, was about to follow further to expostulate, but his mother, sharply rapping the table with her fan, prevented him. Now don't run after her, Paul, she cried peremptorily. You behave like a perfect fool, and she just turns you round her little finger. If your wife has no sense of morality, other people have, and you must do your duty, however much Grace dislikes it. I dare say we might manage to find Granny Bridger someplace. I dare say you'll do nothing of the sort, Paul, she answered. The girl's a little wanton. I've known her since she was a child, and she always was. I wonder she has the impudence to come back here. But if you have any sense of decency, you won't help her. How do you suppose you're going to keep people moral if you pamper those who fall? Remember that I have some claims upon you, Paul, and I don't expect my wishes to be entirely discarded. In her domineering way, she looked around the room, and it was obvious in every repellent feature, in her narrow lips, in her thin nose, and little sharp eyes, that she remembered how absolute was her power over the finances of that house. Paul indeed was a squire, but the money was hers, if she chose, to leave every penny to Bainbridge. Next day she came into luncheon in a towering passion. I think you should know, Paul, that Grace has been to Bridger's cottage. I don't know how you expect the tenants to have any regard for your modesty and decorum if your wife openly favors the most scandalous indecency. Grace turned on her mother-in-law with flashing eyes. I felt sorry for the girl and I went to see her. Poor thing, she's in a great distress. She saw again that little cottage at one end of the park gates, a pretty rural place overgrown with ivy, the tiny garden vivid with carefully tended flowers. Here, Bridger was working, a man of middle-aged, hard-featured, and sullen, his face tanned by exposure. He turned his back on her approach, and when she bade good morning, answered unwillingly. I've come to see Fanny, said Miss Castilian. May I go in? He faced her with a dark scowl, and for a moment did not answer. Can't you leave the girl alone, he muttered at last, huskily. Mrs. Castilian looked at him doubtfully, but only for a moment. She passed by quickly, and without another word entered the house. Fanny was seated at the table, sewing, and close to her was a cradle. Seeing Grace, she rose nervously, and a painful blush darkened her white cheeks. Once a pretty girl, with fresh colors, active and joyful, Deep lines of anxiety now gave a haggard look to her eyes. Her cheeks were sunken, and the former trimness of her person had given way to slovenly disorder. She stood before Grace like a culprit, conscience-stricken, and for a moment the visitor, abashed, knew not what to say. Her eyes went to the baby, and Fanny, seeing it, anxiously stepped forward to get between them. Was you looking for father, mum? she asked. No, I came to see you. I thought I might be of some use. I want to help you, if you'll let me. The girl looked down stubbornly, white again to her very lips. No, mum, there's nothing I want. Facing her, Grace understood that there was something common to them both. 
for each had loved with her whole soul, and each had been very unhappy. Her heart went out strangely to the wretched girl, and it was torture that she could not pierce that barrier of cold hostility. She knew not how to show that she had come with no thought of triumphing over her distress, but rather as one poor, weak creature to another. She could have cried out that before her Fanny need fear no shame, for herself had fallen lower ever than she. The girl stood motionless, waiting for her to go, and Miss Castilian's lips quivered in helpless pity. Mayn't I look at your baby? she asked. Without a word, the girl stepped aside, and Miss Castilian went to the cradle. The little child opened two large blue eyes and lazily yawned. Let me take it in my arms, she said. Again, the fleeting color came to Fanny's cheeks as with a softer look she took the baby and gave it to Grace. With curious, motherly instinct, Grace rocked it, crooning gently, and then she kissed it. Against her will, a cry was forced from her. Oh, I wish it were mine. She looked at Fanny with pitiful longing in her eyes, all bright with tears, and her own emotion thawed at length the girl's cold despair, for she buried her face in the hands and burst into passionate weeping. Grace placed the child again in the cradle and gently leaned over Fanny. Don't cry. I dare say we can do something. Do talk to me and let me see how I can help. No one can help, she moaned. We've got to go in a week. The squire says so, but I'll try and make him change his mind, and if I can't, I'll see that you and the baby are well provided for. Fanny shook her head hopelessly. Father says if I go, he goes too. Oh, the squire can't turn us out. What are we to do? We shall starve, all of us. Father's not so young as he was, and he won't get another job so easy, and Jim and Harry have got to go too. Won't you trust me? I'll do whatever I can. I'm sure he'll let you stay. The squire's a hard man, muttered Fanny. When he sets his mind to anything, he does it. And now, at luncheon, looking at Paul and his mother, Bainbridge and Mrs. Johnston, she felt a bitter enmity against them all because of their narrow cruelty. What did they know of the horrible difficulties of life when their self-complacency made the way so easy to their feet? Fanny Bridger is no worse than anyone else, and she's very unhappy. I'm glad I went to see her, and I've promised to do all I can to help her. Then I wash my hands of you, cried the elder Miss Castilian violently. But I can tell you this, that I'm shocked and scandalized that you should be quite dead to all sense of decency, Grace. I think that you should have some regard for your husband's name and not degrade yourself by pampering an immoral woman. I think it was unwise of you to go to Bridger's cottage, said Paul gently. You're all of you so dreadfully hard. Have you none of you pity or mercy? Have you never done anything in your lives that you regret? Miss Castilian turned on Grace severely. Pray remember that Miss Johnston is a single woman and unaccustomed to hearing matters of this sort discussed. Paul has been very lenient. If he were more so, it would seem as if he connived in impropriety. It's the duty of people in our position to look after those whom Providence has placed in our care. It's our duty to punish as well as to reward. If Paul has any sense remaining of his responsibilities, he will turn out neck and crop the whole Bridger family. If he does that, cried Grace, I shall go too. Grace, cried Mr. Castilian. What do you mean? She looked at him with shining eyes, but did not answer. They were too many against her, and she knew it was useless to attempt anything more till next day, when Paul's mother departed. Yet it was almost impossible to hold her tongue, and she was desperately tempted to cry out before them all the story of her own shameful misery. Oh, these virtuous people, she muttered to herself. They're never content unless they see us actually roasting in hell, as if hell were needed when every sin brings along with its own bitter punishment. 
and they never make excuses for us. They don't know how many temptations we resist for the ones we fall to. End of section 21